Mark 9, 1 through verse 13. Previously, we've been looking at this kind of radical discussion that Jesus has been having with his disciples. Uh, earlier in, in the um, chapter 8, there comes a point, it's, the, it's the, the center of the book of Mark, where Peter makes this grand confession about who Jesus is. They're walking um, alongside, and, and Jesus is walking with the disciples, and Jesus kind of throws some, a question out to them, who do men say that I am? And the disciples are like, oh, you know, some people say that, that you're Elijah, and, you know, some people say that you're a great prophet. And then Jesus, using that as kind of a leading question, gets to the heart of the matter, and he says to them, who do you say that I am? What is your claim? What have you developed in your time following me? What is your confession about who I am? Do you, do you fall in with the, the popular thought about me, or through your observation, through the evidence of what I've demonstrated, who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes this confession where he says, you are the Christ, you know, the Son of God. And Jesus, in, not in the book of Mark, but in the book of Matthew, reveals that he says to Peter, he's like, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but, but your Father in heaven. And, and so Peter's like on cloud nine, and he's like pumped because all of a sudden Jesus just, you know, gave him this great accolade in front of his friends that he hears from God and like God specifically told him that this is this, you know, this great thing about Jesus. And then right after that, Jesus goes on to, to say, uh, you know, about the, the Messiah, about, you know, who he is, that the son of man must suffer at the, at the hands of the elders and the scribes and, and, you know, the Pharisees. And then Peter, he's like, he's confused and he doesn't understand because the Son of Man was not supposed to, in their minds, in the Jewish mind, wasn't supposed to be associated with suffering. And so he takes Jesus aside and kind of rebukes him and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And then right after that, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You are, you are, he's calling Peter out and saying, you're in league with Satan because you're trying to, to get in the way of me obeying the will of God as the suffering servant. You're getting in the way of the mission. You're opposing God's will. And so Peter goes from being on cloud nine and hearing from God to being an instrument of Satan and trying to divert Jesus in like a matter of like five minutes. And he gets called out in front of everybody again. So he, it's like a big roller coaster for Peter. But then after that, Jesus calls the crowd to himself the people who are around, and then he begins to teach them. He says that if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, you must, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. And he's, he's laying out for them the radical call of discipleship. He's laying out for the disciples and for the crowd what will be required if you want to follow Jesus. Not that you can just hang around him, but if you want to go with him from this point on, as Jesus introduces this idea of suffering, you must be willing to take up your cross and suffer with him. Now, this has kind of been the theme because from, from the first half of the book of Mark explains and, and Jesus seeks to demonstrate and Mark seeks to show us that Jesus was in fact this prophesied coming Messiah. The first half was about showing 
that Jesus is this king that's promised in the book of Mark. And so he begins to, to show that from the very first chapter all the way through chapter 8. But now at Peter's confession, Jesus begins to show the disciples, I'm not just a king, but I'm, an, I'm a king that is going to suffer. I'm the suffering servant. So I'm both Messiah that Mark proves in the first portion, but now he shows that I'm the suffering servant as well. And so from this point on in the book of of Mark, Jesus begins to constantly, again and again, like almost all the time, every time you hear him talk, he begins to speak of his suffering, that, that he must go and suffer, that he must speak, he, he speaks of his death again and again and again. And so he, we, we kind of ended the last passage with, with verse one here, where he says, he's speaking to uh, the disciples there, talking to them about following him. You know, he says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you seek, if, if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospels, you'll find it. And then he goes on and he says to them in, in verse one of chapter nine, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, kind of a confusing sort of statement because it, on a kind of one-off look, it's like, okay, the kingdom of God is coming. So basically what Jesus is saying is that they're going to like live forever until the point, you know, until our day. So these people are still alive somewhere. That's not what Jesus is getting at. What he's getting at here is that they're going to see the kingdom, the power of the kingdom of God. He says, you won't die until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, we, we talked about last week that when a king would seek to establish his kingdom, it would come at the point where he had defeated the greatest enemy that he faced, you know, or, or in his first victory uh, at war, when he defeated the first person. But when Jesus goes to war as a king, he defeats sin and death. And at that point is when his kingdom is we're beginning to see that in power because no other enemy could defeat Jesus. The, the last enemies that Jesus faced were Satan, sin, and death. And in one swoop, he defeats them all, and these people will see them. And so when Jesus says they won't see, they won't die until they see the kingdom of God, you know, after it has come with power, he's speaking of his resurrection. When he defeats death, he comes back from the dead. Now, we know the way that Mark writes, he ties this last, you know, verse one uh, of this idea of the the end of chapter eight, where Jesus is talking about his suffering and dying. The beginning of chapter one in this first verse uh, of, of this kingdom coming with power. And now we get a glimpse of the resurrection in this second portion. We'll look at this event called the transfiguration. So he starts in verse two. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So it tells us here, after six days, Mark, uh, Jesus with his disciples, they go up on a high mountain. Now, what's happening here is we're seeing uh, par parallels in this story, like we've seen in the past, with the book of Exodus with Moses. Earlier in Israel's history, Moses, after six days, went up on a mountain. He went up on Mount Sinai. He went up on this great mountain to meet with God. 
This is in parallel to Exodus 24. It says in Exodus 24, verses 15 and 16, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the clouds covered the mountain. The glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the clouds covered it six days. So Jesus, and Mark writes in this very similar way, drawing our attention back to that portion in Israel's history, speaking of that time when Moses would go up the mountain. Now, mountains were significant in Israel's history because this was the place where God would, would come and would meet with man, that he, he would have these encounters. Uh, on the mountain at Mount Sinai, Moses would go up and he would be there on the mountain and he would receive the Ten Commandments. And he would have, you know, an, an intimate time with the Lord there. Later in Israel's history, the prophet Elijah called the false prophets uh, um, and challenged them on Mount Carmel. He took them up and, you know, that's that story where, where they're having like this battle of the gods and, and the... Uh, the false prophets, they're like digging, you know, they build their altar and they're chanting and Moses is making fun of them. Or I mean, Elijah's making fun of them. And he's like, your God's probably on the toilet is literally what he says, says to them. Um, and then uh, Elijah, he's like, all right, back up. And he like digs, a, he digs this like crazy trench around his altar and he puts every, he builds it and he pours water all over it like seven times and it's all crazy. And then God meets there and demonstrates his power upon the mountain. This was a place in, in history, um, in Israel's history, where God reveals himself to humanity. Now, it says here that Jesus, after they went up on the mountain, in uh, verse 2, he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And then it says that he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It says he's transfigured. What that, what that means, um, it basically means to change. It's, in, in short, it's kind of has, it shares the same root word um, for like metamorphosis. You know, it's, it's this changing that happens. Now, when it talks about being transfigured, it doesn't mean simply a, a change in in nature where Jesus went from being, you know, this kind of like meek and mild man to like all of a sudden he's got like this macho attitude. But what it's speaking of more specifically and the more literal translation, it speaks of an outward visible transformation of his appearance in accordance with his inner nature. So his outward appearance began to reflect what was inside of Jesus. It's the, it's the act of, of this outward expression of one's inner character. The outward coming from within, which is the, the true representation of, of who Jesus really is. And it, so it says of him, the way that this transfer, transfiguration uh, went down, it tells us that he's he's there transfigured before them. And it gives us a description. His transfiguration was so complete that it actually changed his clothes as well. It says his clothes became radiant as no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, they're like white, 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 like crazy white, like glowing. Um, and so Jesus is transformed. He's transfigured before the disciples. And it's not just his, his person, but his clothes are transformed as well. Now, 
the way that he is clothed here, pictured in this, in this pure white, in this pure, you know, radiant uh, garments, this is the way that you would dress for ceremony, that you would dress for if you were a king and you were to be enthroned. At that moment, in your, when you were to come into power, you would be dressed in a similar way here. And what's being suggested through the text is that Jesus is, is the King Messiah who has come, who is about to be enthroned. Now, as we saw, he will be enthroned, he will come into power at his resurrection. And the transfiguration, really, it's a, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of a future event to come. This transfiguration of what they're seeing Jesus as here, it's showing, it's represent, representative of his resurrection. When he, when he comes and he is made completely clean again, when he is in his glory and in his majesty. Now, the book of Matthew also tells us that Moses, or, or excuse me, Jesus, his face was glowing. It was like radiant. You know, his skin was glowing as well. Now, before Moses, when he was up on Mount Sinai in uh, Exodus 24 there, and he was meeting with God in that six-day period and the cloud covered, when he came down the mountain, as he made his way down and he saw, you know, his other leaders, they were telling him, like he didn't even know that his face was glowing, that it was shining, that it, it was, you know, it was like just totally so bright, and the people actually were scared. They were terrified of what Moses looked like. And so what Moses began to do, he actually wore a veil over his face and whenever he was with the people. And then whenever he would go up to the mountain, he would take the veil off. Now, with Moses, eventually that began to fade. The, the, the reflection, the, the glow that Moses took on, it would go away. Because when Moses experienced the, that time with God, it was a reflection of God's glory. But when we see Jesus, Jesus is here transfigured before them, the glory comes out of Jesus. He's not a reflection of God's glory, but he is the glory of God the Father in bodily form. Jesus is not purely, you know, a reflection of you know, God's glory coming off of him and which will eventually fade. But in himself, he has that glory within himself. Now, verse 4, along with Jesus being transfigured before them, his clothes are, are made radiant. And now in verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So it's kind of like bizarre, like all of a sudden, like Jesus is like all crazy transfigured in his, like in this glorious body. And then like all of a sudden it's like, hey, there's Moses and Elijah hanging out, talking with him. I tried to find a picture of this, but it seriously looks like, I, I, I looked online for some of them, and like every single picture looks like Jesus and Moses and Elijah are doing like parkour together, like in the air, and they're like flying, doing cool tricks. And it's like, I'm pretty sure that's not how it went down. They weren't doing like air tricks, and um, and the disciples were like all like, that's that's pretty much what every picture looked like. I was like, this is the worst. I'm I'm pretty sure God's glory is probably more glorious than like that. Um. So we see Moses and Elijah show up on the scene here. 
They're talking with Jesus. Now, Moses and Elijah, they were great deliverers in Israel's history. Throughout the entire history of Israel, Moses was like, was like the man. Like if there was somebody that was referenced, it was Moses. I mean, the guy, you know, he was the author of like the, the, their, the Torah. Like he was, he was the prophet. And then we have Elijah here. So they were these great deliverers in Israel's history who would lead the nation at times, who would deliver Israel out of Egypt and out of bondage, who, who would lead Israel through times of, of oppression and persecution. But they were also forerunners of the Messiah as well. They were to prepare the nation and the people for the coming of Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord told Moses that a new prophet is coming. A new servant will be raised up. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, he says this, The Lord your God will raise... This is the Lord speaking to, to Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So there's this idea that Moses knows there's a new prophet coming and, and it's, to, it's to him that they should listen. Now, later, Peter would remark upon the work of those prophets uh, in the book of Acts. He says, as, as he's speaking to a group, he says, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the, the prophets through Israel's history, everything that has happened, all points towards this coming Messiah, toward to Christ, to Jesus. Now, it says here that they're talking with Jesus. So there's these great prophets, Moses, Elijah, they're having a chat with Jesus. And one of the other gospels reveals to us that Jesus is explaining to them the suffering that he will go to, that he's going to go to Jerusalem and go to the cross. They hold this audience with Jesus, but Jesus is the superior in this conversation. They are talking to him. They come to him. It's demonstrating to us that Jesus is in league with these guys, but also that they submit to him. Moses was great in Israel's history. Elijah was great in Israel's history, but there is, there's none greater than Jesus. And so Jesus stands apart here. The work of Moses and Elijah all points toward Jesus. Jesus he is the culmination. He is the fulfillment of everything that they worked for and everything that they communicated about. He is the fulfillment for them. Now, they bear witness of his work. And in verse 5, Peter is observing Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. He's like, this is the craziest thing ever. Like, these are all like my heroes right here. And then he says in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. It's like, dumb. It's like, can't you just like watch from a distance? And like, you don't want to like open your mouth at the one time where it's like, this is crazy. I've never experienced anything like this. It's like, well, yeah, Jesus brought you and something crazy that's never happened before is happening. Of course, it's good that you're here. And then he goes on and he says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, Peter's statement here, it's not just like he got like this construction bug where he wanted to build, where he's like all of a sudden like, this is a sweet place, let's build. He didn't, this, this wasn't his goal here. 
partially it was, it was a little bit dumb because the way that he communicates is that he's trying to put Jesus, Elijah, and Moses on the same plane. If you're going to build like one tent, you build one for Jesus because obviously these other guys are submitting to Jesus. But it demonstrates to us that Peter, he still doesn't understand that Jesus is superior. He is above these other uh, figures. So he says, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, it's kind of a dumb statement, but it's not completely dumb. Here's why. After God's glory came down on Mount Sinai, after there was this great moment where God has revealed himself, what happened was God told Moses to go and to build a tent. He told them to build the tabernacle. It's the same word here, tent and tabernacle. Some of your translations might say tabernacle. So essentially what's happening here is Peter's like, last time something like this happened up on the mountain, like we built tents and like that's what was happened. So like, let's build some tents. Now, the other reason for this is because the tent, the tabernacle was, it was the place of mediation where people could go to worship God, where they would be able to give sacrifice, where they would be able to worship in a way where they wouldn't get killed. When Moses went up on the mountain, he told the, the children of Israel, don't come near the mountain, stay away or you will be killed. If you touch the mountain, if you try to come up the mountain, you'll, you know, God is holy and you're not holy, so you need to stay away. The tabernacle that God tells them to build is so he can come and, and dwell in that tabernacle. He can be there amongst the people and they can come and worship him and have a priest go in and out and, and give sacrifice and, and their sins can be cleansed. Now, Peter wants to build these tabernacles because it's at the tabernacle, it was at that point where they could meet with God. They could do it in a way that all of the people could access. Now, Peter needs to come to understand what is being revealed here. Peter wants God to come and dwell among them in a tabernacle. He, he wants to capture this moment just like it was in the book of Exodus and say, okay, Lord, like come and, and dwell in the tabernacle among us. It wasn't an entirely foolish uh, suggestion because Jews held on to this hope that one day God would come again and he would, he would dwell among them in the tabernacle. But what Peter doesn't understand and what Jesus is trying to communicate and what is that God has come and is dwelling among them. God has come in bodily form in Jesus. He's being revealed to them as in his glorious nature. He's transfigured before them, showing who he is. And God has come, and he's dwelling within bodily form in Jesus Christ. John, uh, John would go on to, to communicate this really well in, in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word there, dwelt, is tabernacled. It's the same word. Jesus, he be, God became flesh and tabernacled. He, he dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's this idea of the glory of God being revealed, and it is all built into Jesus in bodily form. And so Peter's missing it. He doesn't understand, like, you don't need to build a tabernacle. Jesus is already dwelling among, uh, among you. Like, he's already come again, and he's with you, and he's revealing himself to you in all of his glory, and you keep missing it. You keep not understanding. Now, so Peter's making like this, uh, kind of like another sort of dumb thing. You know, he's kind of trying to convince them that this is a good idea from a distance in this glorious moment. Thankfully, God comes in and literally overshadows the moment and like helps Peter out here a little bit. Look at verse 7. After Peter says this, verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Similarly to what happened on that uh, on Mount Sinai, the cloud came, it covered the mountain. It's the same word that's used there. This is the glory of God dwelling on the mountain, and it envelops Moses and Elijah and Jesus. In uh, this is God's glory upon the mountain. The same the same cloud, the same uh, instance that happened, God's glory that indwelled the tabernacle, as well as that filled Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings uh, 8, as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Solomon's temple, the, this same cloud that encompasses Elijah and Moses, it fills the temple. It says in 1 Kings 8, uh, verse 10 and 11, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So this cloud here is the presence of God, and it's symbolizing that within Jesus is, is the glory of God. It dwells within him. It dwells with humanity. And then within the cloud, a voice speaks. God speaking, he says, this is my beloved son. This recalls back to, if you were with us, all the way back in the first chapter when Jesus was baptized. At the baptism there, the declaration happened very similarly. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens were open, and it says that a voice came out, but only Jesus heard it at that moment. Only Jesus heard it, and, he, and God is speaking to his son in that baptism moment. He says, you are my beloved son. At that moment, here, God speaks again from the cloud. But here, it's to declare who Jesus is to the disciples. It's the first time where the disciples hear this voice come out and, and be able to communicate to them who he is. Now, this does a couple things. Not only does it tell us who Jesus is, but it tells us how much greater he is than Moses and Elijah because they don't get anything. It's not like, and this is Moses and Elijah. They're totally ignored. And God speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The disciples, they, Jesus has been revealing them, himself to them again and again, but they've failed to grasp who he is. They failed to understand and recognize him as the son of God. And so God speaks on his own. He's like, if you guys don't get it, you've been here, you, you know, you've heard it again and again. You don't get it. So here it is. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. God gets involved and speaks to them. Now, Peter goes on to speak of this account later in, uh, in his epistle. In 2 Peter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were made known to, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's speaking of this moment here. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Later we see that Peter gets it. He's communicating it. He's like, I witnessed the glory of Jesus when we were on the mountain. And so I communicate to you the power, because I've seen the power. I've experienced that power. Now, God also says, listen to him. Of course, God wants them to listen to him. But this also brings us back to that passage that we looked at in Deuteronomy, where there was the prophesied servant that, you know, Moses was like, a new, ser- a new servant's coming. God's telling him, you know, a new prophet is coming. Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so God's kind of following this up like, listen to him. Same phrasing, listen to him. You know who he is. He's my beloved son. Listen to him. It's, a, it's a, this command. It's a constant, it's an imperative command. It's, it's a constant action is what he's calling them to. He's saying, don't just listen to him once, but be constantly hearing him. Be constantly and actively listening to what he says and responding. This is the one point that the, that the disciples, they don't seem to be able to accept it. And so God speaks and tells them, hey, listen to what Jesus is saying. Listen to him. The point that, that God is following up on him is the point that they've failed to grasp ever since Jesus has introduced it again, which is that he's going to die, that he must suffer. And they keep coming up with like ways like, oh, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. And, you know, trying to rebuke Jesus. And God's like, finally, like, listen to him. He's right. You know, listen. Now, listening to Jesus, even it goes beyond just that one idea of understanding that he's going to suffer. Listening to him is really an exhortation to make your choice, to make your commitment to whether you're going to come after him. Like he said in the earlier passages that we looked at, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must listen to what he's saying and respond to that. He says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospels, you will save it. God isn't just speaking to, uh, of listening to Jesus on that one instance, but he's calling us into more of a, a, a deeper commitment to understanding and participating in the suffering of Jesus. Now, 
When God speaks here, he's also validating what Jesus has been saying. Jesus has been saying he's going to suffer, and there's this big argument with the disciples, and they're like, no. And God's saying, yes, listen to him. He's ratifying like this big statement that Jesus has been making again and again, and he will continue to make. They need to understand that although they see Jesus in glory, although they're getting a glimpse of what he will have, that road doesn't lead, the road to get there isn't through war. It isn't through these glorious battles, but it's through suffering. The road to glory is leading through the valley of suffering, and they, Jesus is asking them to join him in that. He's asking them to understand and to join them in that mission. Now, verse 8, he, suddenly they look, they're looking around, and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, but Jesus is still there. Elijah, Moses, they're like the greatest figures in, in the Old Testament. They vanished. They're gone. They have no relation, you know, in status, according to Jesus. They're nobodies. They're just, they're gone. But Jesus stands alone. Jesus is the one that is the bridge between God and man. Jesus is the one who stays with them. And it's key that he stays with them because whenever you would see, you know, appearances like this in, in the Old Testament, like when Elijah, for instance, he, a, a cloud appeared and he, rolled, he rode up to heaven and disappeared in a chariot of fire, which is really awesome. But what happens in these instances when people are taken to heaven like this the people are left behind. But here, Jesus, he, he, his glory is revealed, but he doesn't bail out on them. He's faithful to be with them. He says, We're, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stick with you. He doesn't abandon his disciples. He goes with them on the way to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. The disciples, he doesn't, he doesn't expect them to go down this road alone. He doesn't say, this is where I'm going and I'm going to bail on you guys now and you guys should continue down that road. He leads them down that road. And so we can know, as he didn't bail on them, when we go through, you know, our choice, when we decide that we want to, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him, as he didn't abandon them, he will not abandon us. When we go through that, that valley of suffering on, on the road to glory, he will not abandon us in that time either. Now, as they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. So he gives them this command to silence again. It's like, okay, guys, you saw this. Don't say anything about it. This has been the theme throughout the book of Mark. It's been it's come up again and again since the very first chapter where Jesus does something and he says, don't tell anybody about it. Don't tell anybody about who I am. Don't say anything. Even when Peter made that declaration that Jesus is the Christ and, he, and God, you know, he revealed ugh, Jesus is God and he's this promised Messiah. And then Jesus responds back to him and says, like, you've heard from God. And, you know, like, that's only by God's grace that you have understood that. Even at that moment, Jesus doesn't let Peter say it to anybody else. He tells them to, to be silent about it as well. Now, 
before the commands to be silent about who Jesus is when he tells them, don't say anything. They've been absolute commands where they have, it's just like, don't say anything ever. But now it's interesting. We, this is the first moment in the book of Mark where there's, there's an end to that silence. He tells them that they only need to be silent until the resurrection. He, they only need to be silent up until that point. Jesus is tying in that what they've just seen is a foreshadowing of what's to come of his resurrection, that he will have glory like he had upon that mountain. This, I, this transfiguration is a glimpse of his resurrection. Now, so why does he tell them to be quiet? The first reason is because Jesus wants them not to get caught. He doesn't want them to get caught up in like the crazy thing. Whenever you see something nuts, you want to tell people about it. And like this was like something any, you know, nobody had ever seen. He didn't want them to get caught up in, in the adrenaline and like the amazement of the moment and be like, we just saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and we're just going to go tell everybody because this is crazy. He wanted them to stay focused, to understand that before they could get to participate in that glory, they still had to make their way to Jerusalem to suffer, to face the cross. Now, the second reason is because they still don't get it. They still don't understand who he is. We've said throughout the whole book, the reason that Jesus doesn't ever let anyone say, you know, tell people about who he is throughout the whole book is because they don't understand who he is. They think they have an idea about him, but they don't have the whole picture. When Jesus heals someone and performs a miracle, that person now is known as a miracle worker in, uh, in the viewer's eyes. But Jesus doesn't want to be known as a miracle worker. Jesus can only be rightly known through the cross and resurrection. He's known as a savior. Yes, he does miracles. Yes, he is a teacher. Yes, he proclaims the gospel and he feeds 5,000 and 4,000. He can walk on water. But that's not what Jesus wants to be known for. And so he doesn't let people explain who he is to others because they're going to explain him as a miracle worker or, you know, a great moral teacher. But Jesus can only be known as Savior. He can only be known in that way. And so he doesn't let them communicate. The disciples, they don't get it. They still don't understand who Jesus is. They, and so they're not able to communicate. They're still blind to a certain degree. Now, this is, an, this is amazing because Jesus, they continue to follow Jesus. But it's only because Jesus is faithful to them. If it was your eye, we'd just be like, forget it. You guys don't get this. Like, you're out. I'm sick of you. you like, you, you're not like, you're still babies. You're not, you don't, you're not mature enough. You've, you've had enough examples. Out. You're out. But they're still in fellowship with Jesus because Jesus is faithful to them. Their, di- their discipleship that, that as, as Jesus has called them, it doesn't depend upon their understanding, but on their continued desire to follow him. It's simply about following where Jesus leads. And so although they don't have a fully developed understanding about who Jesus is, they continue to follow. Now, 
it says that they didn't understand, you know, they were talking amongst themselves like, like, what does he mean by resurrection from the dead? So then when we transition to verse 11, I would think if they had one question, it would be like, what do you mean about that? But in verse 11, they ask, they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? It's like, hmm, okay, like what's, like you just had a question, you're having this big conversation with each other, but now you ask about Elijah? Doesn't make sense. He says, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The Old Testament book of Malachi prophesied that Elijah would return before the great day of the Lord, when God would appear and make everything right. It was said that Elijah would come. In Malachi 4, verses 4 through 5, it says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi says, this prophet, that Elijah will come before the end. But later the Jews believed that the Messiah would come at the end, and so logically they concluded that Elijah would come before, you know, before the Messiah. But more importantly than like their understanding here, their heart behind the question is really the issue. It's not so much that they're like asking about this great historical, like, well, now that, you know, we have this question about the resurrection from the dead, we're not going to ask you about it. But now, like, let's talk about some other prophets since we just, you know, kind of hanging out here. The, their motivation behind the question is more telling. This question that they ask him, it's a leading question. And the intention of their question is to say, if Elijah's coming was going to bring about the end, and, and that means we're victorious, you know, it's bringing in the kingdom of God. Basically, they're saying, well, we just saw Elijah, and so he came. So pretty much like, you don't need to go do this suffering thing anymore, and we don't need to go suffer either. And so like, we're done. He, he's, he's come, they're coming at him with still this desire to avoid denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following him. They're not asking about like this great historical moment where they're kind of trying to like learn a little bit more about what Malachi was, was meaning here. They're trying to get out of suffering. They're trying to get out of following Jesus into suffering. They want to they wanna avoid that completely. They still have not heeded God's words to them on the mountain where he says, listen to him, listen to Jesus. They're still trying to get, get out of it. Now, Jesus, he responds to them in, in verse 12. He says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So Jesus, he responds back, and he says, you're right, Elijah does come first to restore all things. He, you're right, you're correct. And so they're like, yes, we don't have to do this. And then he gets 
to the next portion, how is it written? Then he refers to the scriptures that the Son of Man should be should uh, suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Jesus is saying that this is a God ordained thing that the Son of Man suffer. The suffering of Jesus is not a misunderstanding. He's he's saying like, guys, like I I get it what you're trying to do here. I'm, I don't misunderstand what's actually being said. This is an inherent part of my identity. It is fundamental. It is, it is absolutely essential that I suffer, that the Son of Man suffer. The, the, when we kind of think about Jesus and the reason that Mark wrote the book is, you know, was to, to deal with the way that people think about Jesus. Because when Mark wrote, people were kind of making up whatever Jesus they wanted to, like, you know, think about that they were, Jesus was being recast in different ways. And so it was kind of like, oh yeah, well, you know, there's bartender Jesus who like made all the wine at, you know, the wedding feast and, you know, here's miracle Jesus and like all these crazy things. And we do this kind of today. There's moral teacher Jesus, hippie Jesus. There's like the trucker hat homeboy Jesus. There's like all these like different forms of, of Jesus that we try to interpret and, and, re, and recast Jesus in the, the way that's kind of most convenient to us. But Jesus, he says that suffering is so essential to my identity that you can, it's God-ordained. You can't remove it. You can't say that, oh, well, you know, there is you, you, suffering is kind of optional. Or following Jesus in that way, you don't have to you don't have to do that if you don't want to. In fact, Jesus told us that, that he would suffer and that we would suffer. In John 16, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble and tribulation. We'll have trials, we'll have persecution, we'll have sufferings. But then he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying that, that if, if he suffered then in this world, we're going to suffer as well. It's a part of his identity, and therefore it is a part of our identity. He goes on to reveal a little bit more about this in the next verse. He says to them, or in the next portion, he says, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. Now, this is probably a crazy shock for the disciples and for his hearers, because they were unprepared for the suffering of Elijah. It's like, Elijah was a great prophet in their history, but there wasn't really like a documented case that like, you know, he had to like live in caves and eat weird food, but like it wasn't, it wasn't like super crazy and he wasn't killed in that way. In fact, he didn't have to die at all, um, which is really sweet for him, but not sweet later in the book of Revelation. Um, what's happening here is Jesus is making this claim that Elijah has come and he, and he has suffered. They've done whatever they wanted to him which would be crazy in the minds of the disciples. But what he's doing here is he's saying that his mission has consequences for the mission of Elijah. And Elijah has suffered already, and so therefore he will suffer. If the Son of Man is to be a suffering Messiah, and Elijah is supposed to be this one who comes before preparing the way for him, it only logically makes sense that Elijah would suffer as a forerunner, and then Jesus would come and suffer. 
he makes this reference to Elijah, but what he's doing here is he's referencing the death of John the Baptist. Matthew 17, 13 reveals that in this same passage in the book of Matthew. It reveals to us that the disciples understood that he was talking of John, John the Baptist. When we looked at John the Baptist coming, we saw that John was the forerunner of Jesus, and he was to prepare the way of the Lord much like Elijah was. He lived out in the wilderness like Elijah. He ate locust and honey like Elijah. He wore, you know, a, a belt and a, and a camel-skinned, like, tunic like Elijah. He, they, he was a form of, he wasn't actually Elijah, and Jesus isn't saying Elijah is actually coming, and the prophet Malachi was not prophesying that actually Elijah was coming. This is a figurative Elijah that's coming. And so when Jesus says that Elijah has come and they did whatever they wanted to him, Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist's death, which then all of a sudden it's like, for the disciples, they're like, we were there for that, like that was nuts. And so we're not getting out of this. First, John the Baptist proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the good news. Then he's turned over to the authorities and he's killed. Then Jesus comes, he preaches and proclaims the good news. He's turned over to the authorities and he's killed. And then the disciples are like, okay, we're supposed to preach the good news and then we're going to get turned over to the authorities and then we're going to get killed. And then we're like, oh, shoot. This is the radical nature of Jesus' call. Following Jesus requires a wholehearted commitment in this manner. Whenever Christians decide to follow Jesus on the way to the cross, they find themselves exposed to the world because you have to deny yourself to take up your cross, to live in such a way that you're not caring for your life here. Now, remember, we don't walk this alone. Although we are like the disciples who will follow Jesus to the cross, Jesus ultimately hasn't left them. Although we will have to experience the valley of suffering, we will have Jesus with us. And we also remember that that will lead to greater glory, just as we have a glimpse of glory in our text. Here this morning, you know, we see what, Jesus, what the end result is. Jesus will be glorified. We see, you know, him in his radiant nature, the inner expression of himself. Paul gets down to it real specifically in 2 Corinthians 4. Turn there. Um, we'll read this last passage. He gets down to a great summary of all of this, of everything that we've been talking about for the last three weeks the call to suffer as Christ suffered, the call to, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow him, and, and to go with him, to see, to come from a place where we receive the glory of Christ because of his suffering. Paul, he, he summarizes this so well in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 5. We'll end here. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, For God who said, 
let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We are going to have that same glory that was displayed, that we share in that same glory that Christ, you know, had there on the mountain. But it says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, this valley of suffering, but are not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, since we, we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction this valley of suffering is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Isn't that a great like description? I wish I could have just like read the last three weeks worth of passages and then just read this and just been like, boom, like walked away. Because this is so good. Like, it's like Paul knows what's up. He's experienced it. He has counted all of his works, you know, as loss. That he might know Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so we want to be in this same way. We want to operate in the same way. To be able to say in confidence with Paul, as we choose Jesus, as we deny ourselves, as we take up our cross, as we follow him, that we would consider, as he says in verse 17 here, that this light momentary affliction, you know, as he calls this great suffering, this thing that we think is like the worst thing ever. Paul calls it a light momentary affliction in compared to this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's, it's like, okay, just deal with like a little tiny bit here for the eternal weight of glory that, that awaits and then he, he ends there, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Seek not, you know, to, to save your life because you'll lose it. If you seek to, to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you, if you lose it, if you give it up, if you make your identity and put it off, and you take on Jesus's identity, you will find life. You will find that eternal weight of glory and share in it with him. As we, as we saw Jesus revealed there, he, will, he, he comes into his kingdom with power, but it comes through suffering, through the death and resurrection, and, and ultimately we participate in that with him. And Paul says, 
as we need to learn to say, it's a blessing to, to share in his suffering, to share in his work. It's a tall order, but thankfully we have the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead who equips us to do that which he has called us to do. Jesus doesn't just say like, all right, I did this, now you go do it. Hope you guys figure it out. But remember, when he left, he sent his Holy Spirit to enable us, to help us, the helper, to come alongside, to empower us to do that which he has called us to do. And so we're thankful for that because it enables us to suffer well for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful again for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, we want to be counted worthy Lord, uh, of knowing you. We want to share in your suffering. Um, it's, a, it's a weird thing to, uh, to ask for, to pray for, Lord, but we want to, we want to be able to say, Lord, that we consider you more beautiful and more lovely and more worthy than, than any of the things in this earth. Or we want to take hold of the things that are, that are unseen, that are eternal, rather than the things that are transient and are seen. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work within our hearts, that you would empower us to follow you radically, to follow you faithfully. Lord, I'm thankful that on the last day when we stand before you, Lord, and, and when we make Jesus our identity and and put off our identity. Lord, you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not talented servant or, or, or anything else, Lord, but just faithfulness. We want to be faithful, Lord, with that which you've entrusted us with, and so we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to empower us to do that. We can't do it alone, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to to minister to each other as a community following you. That in discussing this and dealing with this and trying to live this way for your glory, Lord, in putting off the, the temporary things of this world, that we would consider one another, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would love and serve one another in these things. We love you. Amen.